0: This is AFF On Air, the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast, bringing you the latest news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. G'day and welcome to episode 48 of AFF On Air. It's Saturday the 31st of October 2020 and I'm your host Matt Graham. In today's episode, I speak to an Australian Frequent Flyer member who built a life-size Boeing 747 flight simulator in his garage. I find out where all the grounded Virgin and Qantas planes are parked, and it looks like the Boeing 737 MAX is close to being recertified. We'll get an update on that. That's coming up later in the episode, but first, here's what's making news in the world of airlines and frequent flyer points this fortnight. And sadly, the big story this week has been the abhorred incident in Doha earlier this month. The reputation of Qatar Airways has taken an enormous hit, with many Australians vowing never to fly through Doha again, following shocking reports that women were subjected to human rights violations while transiting through Doha's Hamad International Airport. Women on around 10 flights, including 13 Australians on QR-908 to Sydney on the 2nd of October, were forcibly subjected to invasive internal medical examinations after a newborn baby was found abandoned in an airport bathroom. The terrified women said they were not informed of what was happening, and one told the ABC she thought the plane was being hijacked and that they were being taken hostage when the women were all forced off the plane without explanation. Australia's Foreign Minister Maurice Payne labelled the incident a grossly disturbing, offensive, concerning set of events, and has complained directly to her Qatari counterparts. In state border news, Western Australia has announced plans to reopen its border, finally, to what it calls very low-risk jurisdictions to find estates and territories with no local COVID-19 cases for the past 28 days. And this will happen from the 14th of November, subject to the health advice. That's in two weeks from now. Western Australia would begin to allow travellers then from South Australia, Queensland, the Northern Territories, Tasmania and the ACT from that date... But the state's hard border with New South Wales and Victoria will remain in place for now. Travellers to Western Australia would need to meet certain requirements, including health checks on arrival, and some travellers may be required to undertake COVID-19 tests at the airport. Meanwhile, Queensland will reopen its border to regional New South Wales from 1am next Tuesday, with anyone coming from parts of New South Wales outside of Greater Sydney once again able to enter Queensland without quarantining for two weeks. But the state remains closed to anyone that has been in Greater Sydney or Victoria for the past two weeks. Now that said, there is a state election in Queensland today, so it is possible that things might change in the coming days and weeks, but that's uh, what the situation is for now. And Tasmania reopened its border to five states and territories last Monday, with travel to Tasmania without quarantine, now possible from Queensland, South Australia, Western Australia, Northern Territory and the ACT, which I guess are the usual suspects. But visitors will need to register their travel plans and contact details with the Tasmanian government using the new TAS travel system. Now, Tasmania also plans to reopen its border with New South Wales next Friday, the 6th of November. And from this date, Qantas will resume flying 11 times per week between Sydney and Hobart. Qantas and Jetstar are also introducing a range of brand new routes between Tasmania and the mainland. From the 4th of December, Qantas will launch four weekly Boeing 717 flights from Brisbane to Hobart, joining Virgin and Jetstar on the route. And from the same date, Qantas will also introduce three weekly Sydney to Launceston flights, also on Boeing 717s. Jetstar will start direct Gold Coast to Hobart flights from the 1st of December. And as it was already announced a, few, a little while ago, Link Airways, which was formerly known as Fly Corporate, will start direct flights between Hobart and Canberra next week. And outside of Tasmania, we've also seen many other obscure new regional routes being launched over the past few months. Eastern Air Services will soon begin direct flights from Newcastle to Lord Howe Island. Link Airways is launching flights from Canberra to Newcastle, joining Fly Pelican on that route. And Fly Pelican has launched flights from Canberra to Port Macquarie, Canberra to Ballina, and Dubbo to Ballina. And actually, Ballina is really quite a popular destination at the moment, especially while the Queensland border remains closed. Qantas just started flying Dash 8s on the City ballina route earlier this year. They have increased those flights now to several flights a day. And in fact, from next week, they're going to start even flying Boeing 737s from Sydney to Ballina. And Rex complained they couldn't sustain a flight with the 34-seater Saab. So there you go. Um, We've also seen Alliance Airlines launching flights from Canberra to the Sunshine Coast. Um, We've had new flights from Brisbane to Moranbar on Alliance Airlines and various others. So it's been interesting to see how the airlines have adapted their networks when the state borders have remained closed. Now this week, Virgin Australia also announced it will resume flights shortly from Brisbane to Alice Springs and Brisbane to Emerald. The equity value of Virgin Australia's Velocity Frequent Flyer program has been slashed by two-thirds in just a year, according to an independent report commissioned by Virgin's administrators and presented to the federal court. In this report, FTI Consulting valued Virgin's uh, loyalty business at between $640 million and $704 million, Now that's compared to a valuation last year of $2 billion when Virgin Australia bought back a 35% stake in its Velocity Frequent Flyer program from Affinity Equity Partners for $700 million, which according to this report is now what the entire program is worth. Although it should be noted that it was in Virgin's interest in this case to downplay the value of the program. Now, in 2014, when Velocity had around half the number of members that it does now, Virgin Australia had sold that 35% stake in Velocity to Affinity Equity Partners for $335 million, and that would have valued Velocity at around $957 million, which is more than what they're saying the program is worth now. Ouch. Um, Now, beyond the impact of COVID-19, it does seem to show that the Velocity program has lost a bit of its appeal and its profitability. And it just shows that, well, frequent flyer programs may be more profitable than airlines at times. They're only as good as the airline they're affiliated with. Without a strong and appealing Virgin Australia, velocity is worthless. Now, speaking of Virgin Australia, the airline's holidays business is sadly closing down. Virgin Australia Holidays launched in 2003 by then Virgin Blue as Blue Holidays, offering flight, hotel and tour packages. Customers were able to earn Velocity frequent flyer points for all of these packages, including Virgin Australia's Mystery Brakes, AFL Travel and Supercars Travel Packs. But sadly, this isn't the first travel agency to go out of business this year, and it probably won't be the last. Virgin Australia predictably blames, and I'll quote, the ongoing impact of COVID-19 and travel restrictions, end quote, for the closure of the business. It seems Virgin didn't consider it worthwhile to continue operating its travel booking business after the voluntary administration period ends. Now, this strangely comes as Qantas brings its holidays business back in-house. Qantas used to have a business called Qantas Holidays, but it had outsourced this to Hello World a number of years ago. It's now undoing that. Last week, Qantas held its annual general meeting, where the chairman and CEO made quite a few interesting comments. Now, predictably, the Qantas chairman, Richard Goida, slammed what he has been calling frustrating inertia around the Queensland and Western Australian borders. But he also flagged the possibility of Qantas flying to new destinations while they wait for the international borders to fully reopen. Both Qantas and Jetstar are keeping a close eye on new markets that might open up as a result of these bubbles, Richard Goiter said. And that includes places that weren't part of our pre-COVID-19 network. By early next year, Qantas says, they may find that Korea, Taiwan and various islands in the Pacific are top Qantas destinations while they wait for core international markets like the US and the UK to reopen. Two weeks ago, Qantas resumed limited flights between Auckland and Sydney, and this was the first international passenger flight Qantas has operated since June. Qantas is also now operating some extra repatriation flights on behalf of the Australian government and paid for by taxpayers, with the first of these landing in Darwin as QF110 from London last week, and a second flight from Delhi landed in Darwin this week. Now, Qantas also in the AGM flagged the need to continue cutting costs. Qantas says that it does have the liquidity to survive at the current level of flying for a very long time if it had to. But the airline CEO believes they have no choice but to continue slashing costs in order to remain competitive in the long term, especially as Virgin Australia goes through its own period of extreme cost cutting. And that's something that's worrying Qantas. Qantas had already announced plans to consolidate its property footprint to reduce costs. The airline has also now suspended cash spending on sponsorships, and it says that it is also renegotiating arrangements with travel agents to reduce the commissions it needs to pay out. This is of course in addition to the 6,000 job losses announced already this year, and the further 2,500 jobs that would go if Qantas outsources its ground handling. St George Bank will no longer give points on government-related transactions, including tax payments to the Australian Tax Office, or ATO, from the 9th of December this year. Now, This change affects the St George Amplify, Amplify Platinum, and Amplify Signature credit cards, which until now have continued to reward points for government payments. It also affects the Bank of Melbourne and Bank SA versions of these cards. Because all three uh, banks are affiliated, they're all owned by Westpac and they all participate in the Amplify Rewards Programme. Sadly, St. George was the last major bank in Australia that still awarded frequent flyer points at the full rate on all ATO transactions. So it's a bit of an end of an era, sadly. City Hill Coffee at Canberra Airport has been added to the Priority Pass Network. Priority Pass members can now receive a $36 food and beverage credit at City Hall Coffee which is located near Gate 8 in Canberra, and this is offered in lieu of lounge access. It could be a useful option if you're a Virgin Australia flyer because the Virgin Australia lounges still remain closed indefinitely. And Hilton Honours has become the first hotel loyalty program to extend its members' elite status for a second year until 2022. 2022. The hotel chain will also roll over any nights earned in 2020, giving members a head start on renewing status beyond next year. And members will only be required to earn half the usual night stays or base points in 2021 to renew their status next year. Hilton Honours points will also be saved from expiry with no points to expire until at least the end of next year, which is great news for Hilton members and are quite sure that other hotel loyalty programs will soon follow. That's what's making news this fortnight. For more regular news updates and deals, you can subscribe to the Australian Frequent Flyer Gazette or follow us on Facebook. Visit australianfrequentflyer.com.au for all the details. Have you had a bit of a lockdown project during the last few months? Maybe you've reseeded your lawn or taken up a new hobby. Well, Andrew Newnham, who is on the Australian Frequent Flyer Forum, and you might recognize his handle, Harvey Kay, has uh, had quite a lockdown project. He has, in fact, been constructing a Boeing 747 simulator in his garage. And Andrew joins me now to tell me all about it. Welcome to the AFF On Air podcast. Thank you very much. So, it's quite remarkable. You've got basically a full-size Boeing 747 flight simulator in your own home. How did you get started with that?
1: I'd always loved flying. Uh, Flying has been in my family for, you know, generations. And I've always loved the, the jumbo jet, the 747, as it was the first aircraft type I ever flew on. I'd often visualise and imagine what it would be like to fly one, one day I decided, well, since I'm probably never going to get behind onto uh, the cockpit of the real one, let's build one.
0: So you, you moved house at the start of this year, just before the COVID-19 lockdowns, and you had sort of started building a simulator in your previous house, but I understand that you've um, deconstructed it, brought it to a new house, and now you're finishing it off to basically turn it into a full-size replica with all of the buttons and all of the lights and everything.
1: Yes, I mean... The plan was always to build what I've got now. In the setup in the old house, however, it was fairly basic—just a single screen at the front and a few of the buttons. And now that I've brought it here, we've really sort of—I've really concentrated on trying to make it look as close to the real thing as possible. All the buttons, all the lights, uh, and also doing the backlighting behind all those lovely labels that uh, that you can see. Yeah,
0: and you've also raised the floor of the sim so that you can have a, a mechanism underneath the simulator so that you can have both of the yokes um, sort of connected to each other. That's that's quite remarkable. Uh, how do you actually create all of these buttons? Are you finding old 747 parts, or how are you doing this?
1: I bought a 3D
0: printer a few months
1: ago and have learned how to use that, so uh-huh. I've been printing out all the, the buttons and, and knobs that I need.
0: And so what... what... What technology um, is, are you using to be able to create you know, a life-size simulator in your garage?
1: Obviously, I've got the, the computers that, that run it, so I've got a couple of, uh, of computers that I've put together. Um, I've had to really brush up on my woodworking skills and, yeah. and those sorts of tools to be able to, to, to construct the, 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 the outer shell. And when I purchased the 3D printer, I had to learn how to make uh, 3D models that the the printer could use.
0: Mm. And so which sort of flight simulator software are you using for just the, the backbone of the of the simulator?
1: It started off as Microsoft Flight Sim X and I say started off as because there's so much other software that's then been loaded onto it including some software that I've written myself. Oh, okay.
0: And and you're from an IT background, I guess. So you know, you'd have the expertise and the know-how to be able to do this.
1: That's right. Um, I mean, my day job is as a software developer. So sitting down at the end of the day and putting together, piecing together some software that does a certain job in the sim is isn't too difficult for me, which is
0: lucky. Yes, I I don't think I could do this. And I've just had a look at the sim. It's um, there's still a little bit of work to go, but it's there's you know it's. If you've obviously put a lot of time and effort into it. Do you have any idea of how long it's taken to you, for you to, to put that together or how much it's cost? No idea
1: what it's cost. I mean, I started thinking about the project and, and piecing it together about 10 years ago, and it sort of sat round for, for several years. I started taking it really seriously about June. And that, that's about the time I got the printer and... I've then sort of focused my nights and weekends as much as my family will allow. Of course, <laughs> um, they they do like to see me from time to time. Um, but yeah, no. So nights and weekends when I when I have the opportunity is the answer there.
0: Yeah, no, fair enough. And it's, it's a hobby anyway, so that, that's right. Not, it doesn't really matter, I guess. Um, have you had any help from actual seven four seven pilots in setting up some of the more technical aspects?
1: I mean, obviously, we've got JB on the forum, and um, I'd like to say thank you to JB for answering some of my more stranger questions (laughs) I've put on to Ask ask the Pilot. Um, Some of those questions seem to be surprisingly um, targeted um, in in what I'm asking. And the reason is, is because after I got the answer, I then go back and think, okay, how do I incorporate that answer into my design? I've also got another friend who is a seven four seven pilot uh, who used to fly for Qantas, and he's had a go in the sim and he's had a look at the systems that the sim demonstrates, like the um, you know the various panels and and he said that it's actually pretty pretty close to how he he remembers when he
0: used to fly seven four sevens. Oh, that's wonderful! And in terms of the graphics, is it quite realistic? Does it feel like you're actually flying in a plane?
1: I mean, it's not the most fanciest of graphics like you get with the, the modern-day flight sim, obviously. But yeah, it feels very realistic. Some of the flights that I've done, uh, especially around sunrise and sunset, uh, lean the chair back, close the eyes uh, momentarily, and it, it really does feel like I'm, I'm flying. My nephew, a few weeks ago, he was around here for a barbecue with the family, and I showed him the sim, and we were over Perth, and he wanted to do loop-the-loop, so barrel rolls. And so we took it up to 10,000, and we did a barrel roll. (laughs) And then we instantly felt felt sick, Uh (laughs) (laughs) because the 180 view around gives a real gives you the sense that you're actually there and actually flying. Wow. And in fact, that 180 view, the first time I, I sat down there and started taxing, I never really paid attention to the taxi speeds. I knew that you, you weren't supposed to go too fast. Anyway, I took it up a little bit too fast, did a turn, and the next thing, whoa, felt sick. And that was just because I had the sensation of I was actually turning,
0: yet I was sitting still. Yeah, it's incredible. So could the seven four seven actually handle a barrel roll? You didn't didn't crash the plane? <laughs> I, I didn't crash the plane,
1: no. We dropped from ten thousand feet down to seven thousand feet doing it. Could it? I don't think anyone's tested it. They've test they've certainly done one in a seven oh seven, so in theory, I believe it might be possible. Um now just try to find a pilot willing to give it a shot and a um, government and body willing to turn their, uh, their blind eye to it.
0: <laughs> and I guess a 747 that's not in the desert somewhere. Well, that, that, that's true too. So how often do you uh, fly the simulator and uh, what kind of flights do you do? Do you, do you try and do sort of realistic uh, flights between cities or do you, do you do kind of daredevil stunts in the simulator? <laughs> It's, I mean, it's set up as a, as a
1: simulator, so trying to be really realistic. So whilst, yes, we can muck around and do daredevil stunts like that, uh, that barrel roll I just mentioned, most of the flights are actually point-to-point from city-to-city and real-time. So, I mean, I, I love flying, I love being up in the air. This is, for me, the next best thing. So, we will actually do flights from say Sydney to Melbourne or Brisbane to auckland and it will it will be real time it's real real time flying real world weather but the only thing I might do is you know if it's if it 's in the evening in real world, I might make it an early morning or daytime flight in the sim mm. apart from that, everything is as
0: real as I can make it, yeah and I understand that you also try to um have the flight. So if you do a flight from Sydney to Melbourne, the next flight would then depart from Melbourne. That's right.
1: Um, I keep a flight log. Wow. Uh, Yes. And um, every city that I fly into in the sim, I will fly from that city to the next one. So for example, the flight we're about to do, we're flying from Sydney because my previous flight was from Melbourne to Sydney. So when we fly from Sydney to Alice Springs... My next flight will be from Alice Springs to somewhere else.
0: Yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And we're also going to do a low fly over Ayers Rock. That, that's right, yes. I'm looking forward to it. Just finally, uh, do you think that anybody with the ambition or the desire to set up a, flight, you know, a full-size flight simulator in their house would be able to do it? And if there is anyone out there thinking about it, what advice would you have for them?
1: It's a technical hobby, but there's no reason that, that people... People can't sit there and learn. I hadn't done any woodwork since uh, year nine or year eight, um, so I had to, to learn those skills. And there's a variety of skills that will, will would help someone get a work out how to do this. So don't don't sit there and think, oh well, I don't have this particular skill. All you need to do is sit there and is learn. There's a variety of resources out there that would help people to do it. My one piece of advice to anyone that is planning to to embark on a a simulator project, and in fact a friend of mine said that they were going to uh, build a racing car simulator. First thing I said was, get yourself a 3D printer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Some of the panels I tried to make, I remember spending hours with the file, trying to file it down to the perfect size, and I never got it right. The 3D printer does that in 10 minutes.
0: Well, Andrew, thank you very much for joining me on the AFF on Air podcast. Not a problem. And if you're interested to see what the simulator looks like, I've posted a couple of photos in the AFF article for this podcast episode. You can head over to australianfrequentflyer.com.au and just um, scroll down to the AFF on Air podcast section to check out the photos. And as you can see, the simulator is still a bit of a work in progress. The overhead panel still needs to be installed and some of the controls like the fl- the thrust levers and the yokes still need to be connected. But it's coming along really well and Andrew does plan to finish working on all of that over the coming months. In the meantime, the simulator is still very much usable. So as Andrew mentioned in the interview, we did take it for a spin. With Andrew as the captain and myself as first officer, we took off from Sydney and flew west towards Uluru, then did a flyover over Uluru at around 5,000 feet and headed for Alice Springs, where I think a little bit to Andrew's regret, he let me have a go at the landing. Now, I'm slightly embarrassed to say I didn't really manage a perfect landing, um, but after a go around, I did at least get the plane onto the runway in one piece on the second attempt. Speaking of Alice Springs, you may be aware that the airport there is currently being used to store over 100 grounded jets, many of those belonging to Singapore Airlines and Cathay Pacific, among other international carriers. The climate in Alice Springs makes it perfect for long-term aircraft storage, and demand at the facility is now so high that the space is being expanded to accommodate 60 more planes. But not one of the 137 Qantas or Virgin Australia aircraft that are currently grounded are in Alice Springs. So where exactly are they? Well, I decided to find out and I published the results of my research in a recent Australian Frequent Flyer article, which is called Where Are the 137 Grounded Qantas and Virgin Planes? And I've linked to that in the episode notes. What I found was well rather depressing to be honest. At the moment only fifty-five percent of the Qantas fleet and fifty-six percent of Virgin's planes are in active service. That is, they're not completely parked long term. And that doesn't include the aircraft types that both airlines have already permanently retired since the start of the pandemic. This is just their current fleets. But particularly in the case of Qantas, most of the planes that are now in service are of you know from the smaller domestic and, and regional fleets. And the aircraft that are in service are also very much underutilised. So even though 55% of Qantas's fleet is currently active, Qantas's domestic capacity has only been at around 20% of pre-COVID levels over the past few months. And until two weeks ago, Qantas had not operated a single international passenger flight for several months. One interesting thing I did find is that Qantas is still using 9 out of its 10 Airbus A330 300s, now, all of the 200s are parked, um, a lot of those were in Avalon and have now been moved to uh, Sydney or Brisbane. But um, yeah, of the a 330 they're still being used. These planes are all fitted with seats, they're passenger aircraft, but at the moment they're being used predominantly on cargo flights to Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai and Tokyo. And they're even being flown under the same flight numbers that the regular passenger flights to these destinations would use. So sometimes you see them on flight radar, um, for example, as QF-29 or QF-21. But there are no passengers on these flights at all. They're just freight flights. Uh, A few of the A33300s, though, are being used on passenger flights between Australia's East Coast and Perth at the moment. All of Qantas' A380s are currently in storage in the United States. Um, Most of those are in Victorville and a couple are in Los Angeles, where Qantas has an A380 maintenance facility, which it owns. And only two of the 11 Qantas Boeing 787s are now in service. Of the Qantas and Virgin planes that are still grounded, most are in Brisbane, Sydney or Melbourne, parked at the airports there. And there's also a small number of planes parked in Avalon, Canberra, Adelaide, Tamworth, Toowoomba and Perth. And for some reason, from the information I could find, Virgin Australia seems to have also two planes parked in Singapore and a single Boeing 737 in Christchurch, New Zealand, for some reason. Now, speaking of grounded planes, the Boeing 737 MAX has, of course, been grounded since well before the pandemic started. Um, In a small way, the pandemic may have actually helped Boeing by taking some of the pressure off to get the aircraft type recertified. Although overall, of course, it hasn't been that helpful for for Boeing, but that might be one slight silver lining. Now, the Boeing 737 MAX, you might recall, has been grounded worldwide since March 2019 following a fatal Ethiopian Airlines crash. That was the second fatal accident in a space of five months with the 737 MAX after a Lion Air plane crashed under almost identical circumstances in October 2018. A final report into the failings of the Boeing 737 MAX program, released last month by the US House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, slammed both Boeing and the US Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, which was supposed to provide safety oversight. The report blamed a horrific culmination of failures by both organisations – But the Boeing 737 MAX, having been uh, worked on over the past 19 months or so since it's been grounded, could now be close to returning to service, with final regulatory approval uh, imminent from both the European and American regulators. Boeing, of course, since those two crashes has made numerous changes to the aircraft's design, including significant changes to the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, or MCAS, which was responsible for the two crashes. The MCAS now has far more redundancy, and a light to warn pilots that the angle of attack sensors are being fed conflicting information is now standard. For some reason, Boeing had originally made this an optional extra. Other design changes have also been made to improve safety. Although Boeing originally designed the Boeing 737 MAX specifically so that existing 737 pilots would not need simulator training, the manufacturer has now also backtracked on this, so 737 MAX pilots will receive simulator training before they uh, get in the cockpit of these aircraft. Following all of these changes and countless test flights, the executive director of Europe's Aviation Safety Agency or EASA declared earlier this month that he believed the Boeing 737 Max was now safe, and the director himself piloted one of those test flights and in which he said he was quite happy with the way the aircraft was flying. The aircraft is still not recertified to operate commercial flights within the EU, but it is getting close. EASA will shortly release a draft airworthiness directive for public consultation. And at the earliest, if no final issues are picked up during that consultation process, the aircraft could be recertified to fly in the European Union by December this year. It's a similar story with the FAA in the United States. The FAA has not put any deadline on when they think they're going to recertify the plane, but American Airlines is now so confident that the plane will be recertified by the end of this year that it has just this week started selling tickets on Boeing 737 MAX flights between Miami and LaGuardia, which it has scheduled from the end of December. But even if the Boeing 737 MAX was approved to fly again in all jurisdictions tomorrow it will still take a lot of time before all of those grounded planes are returned to regular service. Uh, Many of those grounded planes are in long-term storage currently, so of course it will take time to prepare the jets for re-entry. It will also take time to complete the pilot simulator training that's now going to be required. There are only so many Boeing 737 MAX simulators out there, of course. And that's of course if the the airlines even need those planes in the air right now. Many of them probably don't. And then there's also the issue of public perception. Airlines will need to convince the flying public that the planes are now indeed safe, and that could take even longer. The good news is that, given the amount of scrutiny, testing, and additional pilot training that will have to be conducted before those planes return to service, the Boeing 737 MAXs should now be extremely safe when they are finally recertified to return to the skies. But when they do return, it's unlikely that they're still going to be called the 737 Max. Boeing appears to be subtly rebranding the Boeing 737 MAX 8, for example, as the Boeing 737-8, and the 737 MAX 9 as the 737-9. Boeing has been referring to the aircraft type by these new names in all of its recent press releases, and the new name has also already been painted onto some of the aircraft. It will probably still be a while before we see these planes back in Australia. Of course, the international borders are shut, so there's no, no very few international flights at the moment anyway. Uh, and none of Australia's airlines own any of the planes. Before they were grounded last year, the only international airlines that were flying 737 Maxes into Australia were Fiji Airways and Silk Air. But eventually they will become, you know, a normal aircraft again. And Virgin Australia still has some of them on order. Um, it's not quite clear whether Bain Capital will actually take those 737 Maxes on order. They might have to, but um, they might also try not to, and we'll, we'll have to wait and see what they do there. But I'm interested to know what you think. Would you be happy flying on a Boeing 737 MAX, sorry, I mean a Boeing 737-8, once it's been recertified by international safety regulators? And what would it take to convince you that they're now safe? can Let me know in the AFF on Air discussion thread, which is linked in the episode notes. And in that thread, just as a reminder, you're also welcome to provide feedback or suggestions about the podcast in general or ask me a question for a future episode. Before I go, I just wanted to let you know about an upcoming webinar over at our sister our website, Frequent Flyer Solutions. Next Thursday evening, that's the 5th of November at 8pm, I'll be hosting a webinar all about the new Virgin Australia and what this means for frequent flyers. The new Virgin Australia we know will be a value carrier uh, rather than a full-service airline. It'll have a lower cost base, fewer planes, and a different route network. And as we recently found out, it'll also have a new CEO. And there have been some changes recently to Velocity Frequent Flyer too. So what's in store for Velocity members? Should you just switch to Qantas? I'll talk all about this in the webinar on the 5th of November. So if you'd like to come along, pre-registration is essential, but head over to frequentflyer.com.au or you can click on the episode notes to find out more. And by the way, you may also notice that the Frequent Flyer Solutions now also has a new website. If you haven't visited frequentflyer.com.au for a while, please do go and check it out. Well, that's all for this episode of AFF On Air. Thanks again to my guest, Andrew Newham, and thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate if you take just a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That would help us a lot to reach a wider audience. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. I'm Matt Graham, and I'll be back next fortnight with more news, tips, and tricks for Australian travellers. And until then, safe travels.